Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about me, Danny Moran, and my good pal Sam Foster. The two of us are just a pair of regular Joes, but we're bored. Bored of our monogamous marriages with our respective wives. However, after talking to a psychiatrist, our wives agree to give us one week off where we're allowed to sleep with anyone we want. We seize this opportunity with gusto. However, over the week, in which our quest for casual sex leads us into all sorts of trouble, we realise that single life isn't as spectacular as we thought. And we return to our spouses with a renewed love and admiration for them. Oh. Actually, uh, sorry, that's the plot of the 2011 terrible oh. film Hall Pass, starring Owen nice. Wilson and Jason Sudeikis. This is, in fact, a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Dan Moran, and joining me is my loud, brash, horny friend, Sam Foster. What a sweet tribute to monogamy this uh, podcast Just won't be. Oh. This week, Hollywood personalities run amok as the world's fastest megastar Tom Cruise chases bad guys in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And Josh Trank ushers his less-than-fantastically-received Fantastic Four into cinemas by publicly crapping on it on Twitter and then hastily taking his crap away, but not before someone photographs the crap and widely disseminates it. Plus, Russian filmmaker Alexei German's posthumously completed arthouse epic Hard to Be a God is released, and Danny becomes the only person person who has ever seen it or will ever see it. We also place Russell Crowe's unusual directing techniques under the microscope, mourn the tragic death of Uggy, the dog from The Artist, and welcome the return of Bill Murray, cinema's miserable comic godfather, to Ghostbusters. Finally, there should be time for me to play all 35 answer phone messages I left J.J. Abrams between 2 and 4am last night as I drunkenly pitched him a Star Trek Star Wars crossover called A Wookiee Stole My Dilithium Crystal. It's good to be back, guys. <laughs> I'm back from holiday. Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Woo films, films that star Peter Fitch. Hey guys, 
Film Chat's back. We're back. I bet you missed it. I bet you were struggling, probably, to get over the absence. While you were gone, I've launched we have a whole different media now. I've launched the video division of Film Chat. Yeah. It's a huge success. Previously, the only thing we'd done was me filming myself in Iceland and us filming ourselves watching uh, Night and Day, the Tom Cruise film. Yeah. But now it's gone much more professional. Yeah. We've, we took your Spectre song. We put pictures to it. I mean... At the time of your listening, it's probably a viral hit, right? It's, it's probably, safe to say it's gone full Harlem Shake, right? Yeah. It's probably the panda sneezing is a thing of the past. Yeah. And this Spectre song is like the thing of the present. Goodbye, Charlie bit me. But Spectre video has bitten the world. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Spectre trailer fever has bitten the world. That's exactly. the headlines. Yeah, of it's, it's gone totally viral. It's Obama's favorite video. and He's uh, invited us to the White House. Yeah, he's, we, we've gone to the White House. Jeremy Corbyn's going to be there. It's going to be great. <laughs> so, But anyway, jump on the bandwagon, guys, which is very much rolling on. Um, so we had another fascinating discussion on Facebook over the last couple of weeks. Um, this time it was about our um, Inside Out voice cast, which we were doing at the end of our previous episode. We were deciding who we would cast as the emotions in our heads. Danny and I both pitched our ideas, and now our listeners have pitched their ideas. And they've got some pretty good ideas. They're some pretty interesting ideas. Uh, Steph Mildner, who has yet to write in and tell us how to pronounce his name. Come on, Steph. We need to. So, we need some pronunciation instructions. Maybe we shouldn't make it sound really bad. So he has to. Steph Mildner, and he'd be like, "Oh, he's outraged." So now he'll definitely write in. Um, he applauds your choice of Adam Buxton. Yes, for happy. He applauds Katie's choice of Charlize Theron. He says those are great choices. He would choose for joy Amy Adams, for sadness Tom Waits, for anger Ren Howick who apparently is from the Red and Stimpy show, so he's a professional voice actor, presumably. Fear Wallace Shawn, which is pretty good. Rex from Toy Story. And Disgust Nick Offerman, Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. Pretty good. Chris Young suggests Phil Harris for Joy. That's Blue the Bear from The Jungle Book. An excellent choice. Very choice. joyful bear. For Sadness, he suggests Gordon Brown. He's got an, he's got an exclamation mark and a question mark after Brown he does there. seem quite sad. Chris suggests for Disgust, Daria Morgendorfer. Um, which is the name of the actress who plays Felicia Snoop Pearson in The Wire. Wow. Um, does she full of disgust? No, she just kind of tossed this, man. You know, you, you, that, yeah. you end up dialogue like a motherfucker. You know what I mean? <laughs> that it. You just can't understand anything that she says. But I guess she just kind of goes, That kind of sounds a bit disgusted. For anger, he's got Paul Giamatti, which is a Paul Giamatti. (laughs) Some angry beaver man. Well, if if you've seen the beginning of The Amazing Spider-Man 2, he's pretty humorous and angry in that. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much what he does. And for fear, he suggests John Turturro. Not totally sure why in that one. He's he's a nervous kind of actor, I guess. Yeah, he could play nervy. JT. The other JT. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you go. It's a bun thing choice. Couple of other options. Mike Mantin suggests Aziz Ansari, another appearance of one of the Parks and Recreation cast members in the emotion uh, lists. Sadness is just Julianne Moore, who obviously spends most of her time on oh, screen yeah, crying. Cried. Yeah, perfect. So that's perfect. Slavoj Zizek, the um, Marxist philosopher <laughs> um, for anger. He certainly has a kind of um, general outlook of, you know, pessimism <laughs> and like quiet professorial rage. Kind you of thing, so. like what the hell are you saying, though? Yeah. If you have him as anger and you have Snoop as disgust, it's really going to be a totally incomprehensible <laughs> cast. For fear, we've got Limmy, who's that um, Scottish comedian <laughs> who appeared on Charlie Brooker's uh, Screen Wipe. 
he did he does that sort of he just yeah. sort of looks into the camera and goes Whoa! <laughs> looks pretty fr- uh, frightened and for disgust he's got the rotating cast of rupaul's drag race queens that's hard to say well that's uh they're all just sassy divas so so they fit that mold yeah, of disgust. exactly yeah they're basically just like the uh, the valley girls from the beginning of i like big butts by sir mix a lot that's essentially what all the divas sound like and finally, Todd James Phillips suggests for Joy, Kristen Chenoweth, who is some Broadway star. So, yes. I don't know that is You've got to be joyful else. if you're going to star in a big musical. Exactly. Uh, sadness, Kristen Stewart. She's pretty mopey. Yeah. She spends all of the Twilight films looking pretty sad. So. That's a good one. Anger, Samuel Jackson. I Excellent. Mean, he's great Excellent at being choice. angry. Fear, Jim Parsons. I mean, I hate the Big Bang Theory, so I hate him as well. <laughs> and now I hate you, Tom. <laughs> but he's got like I can see that as like, he's got a nervous voice. That's his thing, right? Just stuttering a bit and talking in a strange sort of you know robotic way. Is that the guy who uh, voices the weird alien in Home? Yeah, yeah. God, he's got a really annoying voice. God, I hate him. <laughs> he sounds like an all right man, but he does have an annoying and, voice. And uh, for disgust, Anna Kendrick, which I guess is similar to the sort of cool girl. Yeah, it's thing this, yeah, it's a sim- that similar kind of thing. Interesting stuff. Great Thanks, choices, guys. guys. Very good choices all around. What an intellectual group of what listeners. What a wonderful we have. listeners. They're wonderful. wonderful. Wonderful people. Very intelligent. Marvelous. And we should also mention Dougal McQueen reappeared on the Film Chat Facebook page. He's always got entertaining posts. He must have been taking a lot of trips to the dentist um, <laughs> and coming back and immediately uh, typing away. And he wrote a much more full and uh, sort of thought through, I guess. Um, selection for the cast of um, the emotions in inside out and he had selected the characters from the famous five and assigned <laughs> one to each emotion did you uh, do you know who these characters are, are yeah you familiar with them you know you never saw the famous five tv show no not we really. we are the famous five are you making this up on the spot? <laughs> george and timmy the dog katie put in the famous five theme tune now <laughs> See, Katie I told work. you, I told you. Yeah. No perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing that. Oh, now I look just fucking nuts, don't I? Don't I? Wait. Okay, but, but hang on. What if we get the Famous Five tune now? No. All right, I'm just going to slip it into sounded, a That sounded great. <laughs> Make it unedible. Well, that Whoa. was amazing. Anyway, Thanks moving on to the next review. Okay, move to the foot. No, sorry. Sorry. Anyway, uh, we don't have time to read that because it we would take time. us probably about an hour, but you should go check it out. It's very interesting. It's like a blog out. post unto itself. He should have his own podcast. He should have his own podcast. Get him, get him on the airwaves. It should be called airwaves. Mac Daddy. <laughs> yeah, good idea. Superhero films announced. Casting rumours leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. So, news time. Scorsese and DiCaprio are making another film together. They've made loads of films. Only the Wolf of Wall Street is the one really worth seeing. <laughs> but that was really good. So, the most recent one. So the most recent one. The Departed is that good. That does be yeah, pretty good. That's a good movie. I don't know. I don't like Jack Nicholson in it. He sort of ruins it for me slightly. There's a little rat gnawing away. Yeah, that's a very subdued impression of Jenna's performance. <laughs> I think it's great. I like it. Anyway, so they are joining to make an adaption of the Eric Larson true crime thriller, The Devil in the White City, which DiCaprio has been trying to get off the ground for years. And now he's just like, I'll just get the best director in the world to direct it. <laughs> oh, God, it's the this thing off the ground. <laughs> that's just a clip. That's just a clip of him trying to get it off the ground. 
Anyway, so the book chronicles the real-life serial killer, Dr. H.H. H. Holmes. All the H's down for Holmes. <laughs> who is um, almost seen as the sort of American equivalent of Jack the Ripper. And he, he killed a bunch of people around the time of 1893 during the World's Fair in Chicago. And he's this weird and charismatic ghoulish figure. And um, basically just reads like a movie. He had like a torture chamber and all this stuff. And he's, there's nine confirmed um, victims that he definitely killed. But they're rumors that are numbered in the hundreds so it's a pretty dark character it'd be interesting dicaprio do that he, he plays intense but he hasn't done out and out psychopath well he's sort of a psycho in um uh Django unchained right it's true but he hasn't he, i don't know um he's a sort of dandy psycho yeah. so it'd be interesting to see him do a serial killer psycho yeah Char- so, charismatic ghoul that sounds good for him scorsese is always interesting dicaprio seems to be on a strong Streak, streak. Yeah, it sounds. It sounds like it could be. It good sounds movie. cool, and it'd be cool. You know, just a Scorsese serial killer film. It's like, what's that going to be like? Another genre. Be like Cape Fear. Be like Cape Fear. <laughs> good point. Gonna <laughs> <laughs> be like Cape Fear. <laughs> yeah, the only other things to say is that there's been a bunch of writers attached to it, including the Imitation Games Gray Moore, which I assume was so bad they burnt that draft. I'm crossing so. myself. I haven't seen that movie, but I know. I know. And you so. Hate it, so. Now the new uh, script, which they're going to shoot, is by Captain Phillips' Billy Ray, who, I don't know, Captain Phillips. Is he the guy who wrote Captain Phillips, or is he called Captain Phillips' Billy Ray? (laughs) That is his name, but he also wrote Captain Phillips. Okay. That's how he got the job. Yeah. I'm perfect for this assignment. That script is okay. Yeah. Except for the um, sort of family stuff, which is a bit shoehorned in, man. So, you know, Scorsese, DiCaprio. Billy Ray. Billy Billy Ray Ray Cyrus writing the script. Billy Ray Cyrus doing the score. Um... (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great It's going to be great Looking forward to it Bill Murray news Everyone loves Bill Murray Don't they? Yeah He's a very popular man Isn't he? People are excited yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excited when he turns up um, And Bill Murray has been uh, They've been trying to get him back To Ghostbusters Obviously for a very long time He's been attached And then not attached To various different incarnations Of Ghostbusters But now According to Birth.movies.death. He has been spotted On the set of the new Ghostbusters reboot The um, all lady Ghostbusters Helmed by Paul Feig And his role um, Has been a mystery But it has been revealed that he is now playing Martin Heiss. Wow. So Martin Heiss is a new character in this rebooted universe. According to Birth Movies Death, he is a professional supernatural debunker, a kind of uh, amazing Randy type, who shows up and proves the new Ghostbusters are faked. Apparently it's a very small role. It's sort of the mirror image of where we meet Peter Venkman at the start of Ghostbusters 2. That's kind of cool. It's a great scene. Yeah, it's absolutely hilarious, the reintroduction of Bill Murray in Ghostbusters 2 where he's got his uh, World of the Psychic TV yeah. show. I'm glad he's um, in it being a different character because if he showed up to be like Peter Venkman for two minutes, I'd be like, why am I not seeing this movie? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he was just turned up and it was the same character, I'd be like, oh, why can't you just lure him back for another you know, 60 days of shooting? Yeah, but I, th- I think having him in as a kind of sarcastic, um, you know, <laughs> mean debunker man like sounds yeah. good. Yeah, he could probably do that in his sleep. Yeah, it sounds cool. So the Hateful Eight trailers come out. There's some snow. It's on a massive format. There are some people delivering cool lines. It looks good. It looks, yeah. It's legitimately the most exciting trailer that I've seen in a long time. Despite the, I didn't really think of much of the Spectre trailer or whatever. You know, the new Tarantino movie. I'm always super excited. Someone made this observation on Twitter. You know, when someone says something and you wish you'd said it, but um, that the Hateful Eight is just a remake of the Thing. They've got Kurt Russell with huge facial hair holed up in one location, and somebody isn't who they're pretending to be. And it's snowy. And like, yeah. Snowy. And it's like got an almost all male cast, apart from one woman. Yeah. Maybe she's the thing. 
Maybe she is the thing. Yeah, she's the uh, alien element. Well, one of them will turn into a transforming alien. It will be like from Dust Till Dawn, where a Tarantino script randomly goes supernatural <laughs> halfway through. I hope yeah. so. That'd be great. Yeah, it looks really great. I can't wait to see a ridiculously wide film set yeah. in a ridiculously small place. It's going to take the two of us to review it. I'll take the left side of the screen and we'll just yell what's going on. Hey, Sam, is, uh, is he... Is, Tim Roth turned up! He shot someone! Yeah, I'm looking forward to Tim Roth as a kind of Jeeves character in his bowler hat drinking tea out of a china cup. And yeah, like, I think he's just sort of... Uh, Tarantino's just watched a lot of, like, British 50s alien comedies and he's like, can you do all these character actors' sort of impressions? Roth is just flat-out comic actor now. That's just what he does. He's just getting more and more absurd. He's great. I hope he swaggers in it. Yeah, he swaggers is he picks up tea, puts down the tea, he walks about, he says absurdly posh lines. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's going to be a classic film. Finally, there was extremely sad news this week when we learned of the passing of Uggy, the extremely talented dog from the artist. And so we will now share a good 15 minutes of silence, which Katie may or may not edit down, but which we will be observing in practice in the studio. Poor Uggy. R.I.P. Uggy. You played dead in the movie. Now you are dead. (laughs) (laughs) My favourite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends. And the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end. Mission Impossible 5 Rogue Nation is the latest in the ever impossible franchise <laughs> <laughs> this one is written directed by Chris McQuarrie yeah. who directed Jack Reacher and has worked with Tom Cruise a bunch of times mainly in a script capacity but now he's their best mates it seems um, and the plot is as follows CIA Chief Hunley played by Alec Baldwin convinces a Senate committee to disband the impo- uh, disband the impossible mission force of which Ethan Hunt obviously Cruise is a key member he argues that the IMF are just far too reckless However, Hunt is on a mission to bring down an organization known as the Syndicate, made up of rogue agents who are seemingly responsible for every bad thing that has ever happened. Yeah. Uh, Hunley doesn't believe this and disbands the organization and makes Ethan a fugitive. So it's up to Hunt, along with some of his chums from the other installments, including uh, Simon Pegg's Benji, Jimmy Ren's Brent, and Vingrim's Luther, to bring the Syndicate down while evading capture by the CIA. They're helped by a mysterious brunette with really lovely legs called Elsa played by Rebecca Ferguson, who is by far and away the best thing in the movie. That's pretty much it. Here's a clip. Cool. I'm on the plane! Open the door! How did you get in the plane? Not in the plane! I'm on the plane! Open the door! What you just listened to was Tom Cruise jumping onto a plane and clinging onto it for dear life in a very exciting opening sequence. Yeah, I think um, that clip, the opening sequence, kind of encapsulates what's good and bad about the film. And that sequence is very technically impressive and it's really cool. 
but that's pretty much you know the actual story is like there's something on the thing you got to get the thing off the other thing yeah yeah, yeah. and so there's a lot of plot it's, it's very MacGuffin heavy there's a lot of stuff going on but there's no real story Basically, I didn't really care what was ever going on, and I never believed... If anyone died, I would be like, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, I would have been really upset if uh, Ilsa had died. Ilsa um, is... Is amazing. Yeah, she's Rebecca Ferguson sort of steals the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Super charismatic, sort of 1940s-esque. Yeah. And fatale. Well, my, my reaction to her um, when I watched the movie was like, oh, she has this real kind of old-school Hollywood glamour about her, and not just because she's called Ilsa and she lives in Casablanca, um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I thought she was really cool and like had a, had a real screen presence. And then I was worried that maybe this is just a kind of filmy way of dressing up. I fancy you. And yeah. then I listened to the Empire review, and Helen O'Hara said the same thing. So I felt like my view was legitimized. Yeah, but she is genuinely really good, right? I'm not, yeah, yeah. I'm not just a sort of moon-eyed heterosexual, you know, going she's sexy in a sort no, of nerdy well, way, but she is really good. She's now. got those little cliched roles like the femme fatale, like what side is she on? Yeah, she yeah, does a yeah. lot with it. You know, she's like an enigmatic presence, and yeah. so that kind of slightly cliched story trait works because of her casting i think what they were doing with her is kind of ticking the boxes of the um standard woman whole the way it's you've got to be sexy you've got to be uncertain loyalties and you have to wear a <laughs> bunch of sexy clothes all the time and like with slits in them with show off your legs you gotta show off your legs show off your bum and like all that kind of yeah, thing yeah. and so all that sort of stuff is a little bit like eye rolling but um she really owns it. I don't know, she totally owns a role. And she does get to do cool stuff as well. She yeah. competes on the exactly same field as the men, and they were obviously trying to, you know, make her as much of an action star as the guys are. Yeah. Um, and there's also the bit where she takes off her high heels. I'm always like, thank God you took your heels off. Thank God. Thank God. Something that's a bit strange about the film is that it's, uh, like, weirdly underpopulated. I found they like, there's a tendency of uh, the action scenes that take place in sort of isolated locations like away from a lot of people and the feeling is that you're just very aware you're watching a film it's like it makes no attempt to sort of suspend disbelief in a way and um basically it's like a series of action sequences yeah but it's a bit lacking in momentum because there's like an action sequence which is just resolved and it's like we've got to fly somewhere else so i can hang off something else or cling to something so it doesn't really have much of a momentum to it um, well, and, and so, also what mentioned there is kind of dissipates a little bit at the end because like the final bit is by far the smallest set piece in the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of going back to the opening sequence. Like if that was the end of the movie and like, you know, you got, he's got to get on the plane, that would be like 10 times more exciting. But it's like, what's on the plane? You know, just. Yeah. But in just, fairness, like that is the very beginning. It's like they don't have any time to, to, it's more like, welcome to the movie. It's super fun. You know, get stuck in. Yeah. But, I don't think it's supposed to be a really tense sequence. No, but I just mean like, that's by far and away the most impressive thing about the film. And it like throws on a gauntlet, which it then, every oh, other subsequent yeah. sequence is less good. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. So yeah, it sort of dissipates slightly. I did like the water one. That's a pretty good sequence. Water one's pretty good. And the, that was like the setup. It was just a sort of... It's when you're talking about with this kind of... You really feel the movie's construction. And that was definitely true in this sort of water heist thing where there was just a bunch of made-up rules. And then mm. they were like, now we've got to follow them, you know? And it was obviously all done so that they could make, you know, do like X, Y, Z cool things. Yeah. yeah. It was all a bit arbitrary. But I, I liked it. I had, I had a lot of fun watching it. I feel like the Mission Impossible franchise knows what it is and it just has a set number of things that it wants to deliver. It's a bit like Fast and Furious in that way now. Yeah. They're actually is quite true. similar. Although this one felt a bit like... Yeah, yeah. A bit They've better. like... Yeah. The first movie is like a real film. And then as the franchise has gone on, it's become a bit more comic booky. It's just popcorn. It's like, watch yeah. the next cool thing. And they do a lot of very... Like, a lot of the effects are practical. 
one one of the the things I liked about it is that um, or the things that demonstrates how practical it is is the fact that the release date was brought forward like four months. Obviously, if they did that with Guardians of the Galaxy, it would be impossible because like all you would see like is a bunch, just see a bunch of tennis balls. <laughs> um, but in this movie, I guess they'd done enough practically that you know they just had time to um, take all the wires. Yeah, scrub the crow's feet off Tom Crow's face or whatever. Yeah, it's it's basically the film the trailer promises it to be. It's a film they set out to make. And uh, I don't know. I found it. I didn't really get that excited by it. I was like, you know, and sort of enjoyed it while I was watching it. I've sort of forgotten everything that happened. Tom Cruise clings to something. He loves to cling from things. He loves to run from things. I think I liked it a bit better than you. I thought there was like three or four really great set pieces in it, and it zips along and it's pretty well performed, very professionally put together. It's fun. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ask-punchingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. All right. Well, the film everybody wants to be reviewed is obviously hard to be a god. Mm -hmm. You know how I'm like the real film fan? You just love this sort of popcorn bullshit, but I'm like three-hour black-and-white art-house Russian sci-fi film. Sign me the fuck up. Yeah, you're in this cinema before they even announce they're showing it. I heard about this film in 2000. I was following all the blogs about the six-year shoot. <laughs> I was following all the blogs about the six-year editing process. I was dismayed when Alexei German died, presumably of boredom. And then I was relieved when his son and his wife took over the editing duties and finished the film. So the plot is, it is um, based on a novel by Boris and... Arkady Strogatsi. So they are the sci-fi authors who wrote uh, the book Rosso Picnic on which uh, Tarkovsky's Stalker was based, which is another heavy, hard sci-fi film. Yeah, Hard to Be a God is about um, a group of cosmonauts who travel to this planet which is identical... Uh, which is identical to Earth, but it's about 800 years behind. It's sort of stuck in a perpetual Middle Ages, and it's basically the Renaissance hasn't happened. And intellectuals are being rounded up and murdered. They, they, you know, they're sort of God-fearing, angry, anti-intellectual peasants. And um, one of the um, astronauts, sorry, cosmonauts, takes the identity of Don Rumata, who is a sort of anthropologist, and he's sent there to sort of catalyze the Renaissance, but he sort of gets wrapped up being a god or something. Uh, and Which is obviously a tough job. Yes. And he basically just witnesses the sort of filth and degradation decaying around him. Uh-huh. And basically, it was, the movie is relentlessly unpenetrable. As, as basically, I sort of got that, and then I looked up um, the plots on Wikipedia, and I was like, really? Like, all this <laughs> stuff happened. It's like quite a dense plot, and I was like, okay, what? When did that happen? Who's that guy? It's a little um, tough on the viewer. It makes no concessions for clarity, and you have to sort of try and keep up. And I tried to, and about an hour in, I just sort of gave up and sort of like was trying to just, you know, enjoy the movie. Uh, just let it wash over you. Wash over me. And it, the experience became a little arduous. It's like technically absolutely brilliant. Like the DOPs, there's two credited DOPs, Vladimir Ilyin and Yuri Kilmenko. And they are like brilliant at their jobs. And the way it's shot, it's in this really crisp black and white photography and these long tracking shots. And it must have been, you can sort of tell why it took six years because there must have been like a hundred different actors hitting marks at a different time for the focal length. And they've really um, studied like medieval paintings. So it's like a sort of Hieronymus Bosch uh, thing. You could you feel like you could pause the frame and there'd be like a bunch of stuff going on. You know, there's a guy in the right-hand corner doing something, you know. And uh, what the movie's most successful at is creating the sort of mise-en-scene mise-en-scene of a sort of um, 
medieval town where it's like pulsing with life, but everything's a bit horrible and shit. And it's a really claustrophobic watch. Me, I'm slightly OCD. So all this stuff of like dirt everywhere and people spinning, I was like, ugh, it's, ugh, ugh, horrible. You just wanted to get out the Sith and <laughs> put some rubber gloves on and sort the shit out. Yeah. And also the sort of, um, it's really well edited and the sound design's amazing. And I feel, I feel like the film was trying to be like a sort of immersive sensory experience where like he was really striving, the director, to create like a film like no other and dispense of plot and structure. And you just got to like, you know, experience this movie and you, you go with it. And uh, but I found like instead of being immersed in the film, I was just lost in it. And I think part of the problem is he's to make this immersive experience, you've chosen quite this de- dense sort of sci-fi plot. And the only bit of information you get is this voiceover at the beginning, which sets up this very um, interesting premise of astronauts effectively sort of going back in time, but like to a different planet. And the idea that they're like gods among men, like just because by virtue of their knowledge, which opens up all these different avenues to explore stuff. And, you know, you could do so much with that premise. And I imagine the book does. And apparently according to the Wikipedia synopsis, it does. But, like um we are recording this in the middle of a thunderstorm in a tent in the valleys in wales so that is why you can hear rain right now and now i will return you to danny's review so as i was saying um i think like the idea of the film is this big sensory experience of you know images and sound colliding whatever but part of the problem for me was that he chose this very dense seeming sci-fi novel which had a lot of um interesting things to say and the premise invites all these cool ideas but like it's completely baffling because he's adapting this dense plot in a way which is completely inaccessible to any kind of viewer thinking about it it's like Terrence Malick films try and be like these sort of sensory amazing epic kind of poetry and motion sort of films but their plots are very simple yeah and you can follow it all but this one is like deliberately like completely an impenetrable kind of plot so i sort of gave up halfway through of trying to understand it and it's also it's three hours long and it becomes very repetitive and there's these endless scenes of like squalor and misery and dirt and decay and death and it's like after 20 minutes it's like i get get it you know i get it and it's like obviously deliberate that's the sort of thing about the movie like they feel like you've they've made the film they want to make but i just don't know how I'm supposed to be experiencing it. And maybe yeah, that's yeah. the point. Yeah. But I found it slightly irritating after a while. And it's a bit like um, offering any sort of clarity is somehow weak or like, you know, <laughs> like you could have just made it a little bit more easy to follow and I don't think you would have sacrificed anything. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that's a, um, a sin sometimes committed by really serious filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah. And there's... um. The way I describe it, there's a sort of running trope in the movie of people like eating stuff. Like they pick up like a sort of hunk of meat, chew it, spit it out, chew it a bit more, give it to somebody, chew it. Like there's rain dripping. And like, even though it's subtitled, the movie is a bit like someone's talking to you with their mouth full. And it's like, I, you know, you could be saying the most important thing in the world, but all I'm hearing is some vowel sounds and just being sprayed with crumbs, you know? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like, that's what it's like. You, you just watching it i was like straining the whole time as like you know trying to find a way in and i couldn't science sound made this good point about how critics get like press notes um before the film starts and i think if i'd knew sort of the rough plot i would have enjoyed it a bit more it's like going that, to the opera and you like if you can read the synopsis then it helps a lot yeah because you can't understand the action just so from watching it i can't write it off as like 
some terrible film. I just couldn't. It just wasn't for me, really. I feel like um, over the course of film chat, I've reviewed several films where I could have just it's just the same points over again. It's like don't really get it. Don't know what it's about. But yeah, I think leaving the film, I just wanted to read the book. But part of the re- why I think this film might be um, not as good as people making out and uh, just a bit of sort of Emperor's New Clothes syndrome is that the critics who are really um, loving it describe how they love it in the most weird sort of bizarre ways in which they say everything and nothing at the same time where a lot of words are being used but you finish reading their reviews and you're like what the fuck does that actually mean so um i'd like to introduce a segment called what the fuck corner so peter bradshaw bloody bradshaw mm. describes the film as maniacally venomous and strange a slow-mo kaleidoscope of chaos and also a relentless prose poem of fear featuring three hours worth of non-sequitur dialogue where each line is a, is an image's stab with nothing to do with what's just been said is it what? Is an image? An imagist. I don't know even that word Imagist means. stab. An imagist stab with nothing to do with what's just been said. Okay. Robbie Collins of The Telegraph writes, How to Be a God is the last film the Russian director Aleski German ever made. And while you're watching it, it feels like it might be the last film you'll ever see. <laughs> German's picture, four decades in the planning and six years in the filming and only completed after his death by his widow and his son, pulses with an occult and breath-choking finality, as if both civilization and sense are unraveling around you as you watch. Oh my goodness, wow. Uh, Nigel Andrews of the Financial Times writes, By the close, exhausted, transported, blitzkrieged, the dead strewn around us on a now opened out landscape. We, the living flounder on both sides of the screen. <laughs> we have seen the past, and like the present and the future, it doesn't work. Or rather, it is an internal work in progress, since no part of history, even on an imaginary planet, has ever received closure or a proper finish. We mortals don't know what we're doing, but we are heroic, cruel, inventive, visionary, insatiable, indefatigable, in a word, human, in the attempt to know. I mean, what the fuck does that mean? What does that even mean? It sounds like he brought what he wanted to the movie. Yeah, I think that's the sort of thing with these films. It's like... You just take out what you want. Yeah, they're so sort of vague and open-ended. It's like, this film is obviously about this. And it's like, and if you're not into it, it just becomes a film about some peasants running about in the mud. It is about the human indefatigability of the desire to know. Yeah, it's so vague it becomes meaningless. Mm. So, uh, that's a film. Go see if you want. Yeah. Yeah. So, Fantastic Four is the um, other big film we saw this week, um, or in the last two weeks, and we saw it with a bit of trepidation because it has arrived with an incredible amount of bad press, a historically low rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and absolutely no commercial success whatsoever. Here's the official <laughs> synopsis. Fantastic Four, a contemporary reimagining of Marvel's original and longest-running superhero team, centers on four young outsiders who teleport to an alternate and dangerous universe, which alters their physical form in shocking ways. Their lives irrevocably upended, the team must learn to harness their daunting new abilities and work together to save Earth from a former friend-turned-enemy. So, that synopsis takes you all the way up to the final ten minutes of the film. <laughs> Pretty much. Here's which, a clip. <laughs> uh, yeah, here's a uh, clip. Yeah, a clip of some kind. Wait, let me introduce... That's not <laughs> What's that clip going to be? Um, it could be uh, Kate Mara and Miles Teller talking about some yeah. bullshit. Here is a clip of two of the heroes, uh, Mr. Stretchy and uh, the lady. Amazing. Oh, thanks. Amazing you didn't black out the entire Western Hemisphere. Hmm? 
You basically ripped a hole in the fabric of space-time with unspecked components and no supervision. Yeah, that was uh, an accident. And if by accident you upped the power, you would have created a runaway reaction that opened a black hole and swallowed the entire planet. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen. Of uh, no, <laughs> of no, no <bit>. image. <laughs> that's sorry. That's Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman, never referred to as such, sitting in a lab having a lovely chat. Does this clip exist? Yes. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes it does. I'll send, I'll send you the clip. Incredible, incredible stuff. So, yeah, this is an odd film. It's probably one of the strangest uh, mainstream blockbusters I've, uh, I've seen in uh, recent memory. Well, it's, um, I think why it's such a sort of uh, fun news story is because you just feel there's so much control over these temple pictures that it's hard for them to go too wrong. Mm. Whereas, obviously, something's gone very wrong with this film. Something's gone terribly wrong. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like uh, the studio machine has... Uh, something just went wrong a little bit in the works. And it spat out this strange movie, which, obviously, no one who working on it, like, at, in any capacity, the studio or in the production team, w- wanted the film to be the way it came out. Yeah. Which is interesting in some way. And the main story, as you're watching it, is kind of, like, what happened, you know? You're kind of waiting for the expose in a few weeks where some people will come forward and tell you all the incredible stories because it's a very, very odd beast. Yeah, I think um, when a film gets just, like, mauled by critics, it takes on a slight underdog status. So I sort of went in with, to the film, like, with a sort of, like, hopeful... Yeah, like, I, was really, I was really hoping to like it. Um, and, I, like, my... Going away, it's, like, it's just weird. You can tell that, like, some... There was some vision there. And previously on the podcast, like, I found, like, this whole, like, super serious take on these silly characters, like, might be a bit of a misstep. And maybe it is. Um, but um, in the sort of climate of really irreverent, quippy... Um, Marvel super, superheroes. Marvel stuff. superheroes. It's quite refreshing. This sort of, like, uh, body horror, like, Akira take. Yeah. And so- maybe that's not the best source material to do that kind of film with. But... Um, you know, there's already a reverent film about superheroes where one of them's a massive thing and one of them can fly, and it's written by Joss Whedon. You're not going to get a more reverent, quippy. Yeah, yeah. You're going to do something film. else with it. Um, and so, I think if Josh Trank's like pure vision of the film would have been maybe flawed but interesting, but the studio just like blunted all the edges, so there are just massive shifts in tone, things that are set up and never resolved. Yeah. And there's basically a point in the movie where it's like this was when Josh was fired. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I just give a quick like bit of background on it for people who don't know. Josh Trank is a young director. He's, he's like 31. He has made one previous film, which is Chronicle, which is a kind of found footage uh, superhero movie that was made on the cheap and uh, went on to be very successful commercially and critically. And like a bunch of other directors with a background in special effects, laden small films, he was picked up by the studios and put on one of their tent poles. And they were like, now you're going from your budget of 2 million to 150 or something like that. Good luck. Mm. Um, And he was given Fantastic Four to reboot. The last Fantastic Four movie was only like five years ago. Um, But that's the way things are now. They just reboot willy-nilly. Sure. And um, and as you alluded to earlier, part of his vision for this was a kind of darker, more serious take on it, which is a big ask considering that the characters are some of the silliest in the superhero canon. The guy who's a, a monster made of rock, the man whose arms and legs stretch really far, um, a woman who's like invisible and does force fields, and a guy who can fly and catch fire and says flame on all mm-hmm. the time. 
Um, so yeah, it did seem a bit like, how can you do this in a serious way? But the movie, for the parts of it where it is remotely working, um, is when it's setting up the characters and setting up their relationships. And there's obviously a bunch of different thematic ideas that are being um, put in there. And it's almost like the first episode of a TV show where they're going to develop these characters over a whole season and have them do things. But unfortunately, it's like the first two thirds of a whole film. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's very strange. It's like both the elements of the movie, which seem like the most Josh Tranky, like the mm. most like his original idea, and the elements of the movie, which are obviously a desperate studio papering over the cracks, don't really work. And they especially don't work when they're both put together and they're totally, tonally different and incongruous. Um, yeah. Yeah. I thought um, the cast were really good. Um, they're all like um, interesting actors. I think yeah. like um, uh, Kate Mara's got a she's an interesting screen presence. She's got also like Rosamund Pike aloofness yeah. to her. Yeah, Kate Mara's the journalist in House of Cards, probably why she's best yeah. known in the first Miles, season. Miles Teller is a very sort of unconventional evening man. He was like he did a good job. He's really good in Whiplash and he's, he's good really... in this as well. He's got a good mixture of like heroic and geeky. Yeah, and Michael Jordan's. Michael B. Jordan's really charismatic, and uh, Jimmy Bell's uh, really good. I really like Jimmy Bell. I feel like he's got it. He's yet to have his big break. He's always good and stuff. Yeah, Jimmy Bell is in this movie for about two scenes. This might be one of the main characters, you know. And then he turns into a huge rock monster, and then like you know, even though it doesn't help to halfway through, he's still barely <laughs> developed. But he he brings a lot. Like in the few scenes he's in, you feel like he really worked in his character and understood it, and he just doesn't get to do anything with yeah, it. Yeah, it's a shame. And he's um, one of the many threads that are picked up and dropped. Uh, yeah, and like you feel like you know, a lot of their scenes are missing, you know, their key character scenes, which make the scenes make sense. And uh, they all come out of the film with their dignity intact, you know, they did a good job. And there's a particularly terrible last scene where the lines are like embarrassingly bad, and you just feel you just feel bad for them. Yeah, you have to deliver this. You're like, I felt, poor like guys. the end. The end of the movie. It felt like Josh Trank delivered to the studios a film that was one hour long, and then just cut to black, and then it like it was being shipped out to cinemas in like two days' time, and then they were like, uh, Trank, there's no ending to your film, and he's like, whatever, man, I'm a genius. And then they they brought in uh, Simon Kinberg and whatever a bunch of other producers hurriedly got the cast into various different green screens scattered all over the planet got a bunch of like special effects guys working around the clock got the first wig they could lay their hands on for <laughs> Kate Mara to wear which just absolutely looks nothing like her hair in the rest of the film and they just sort of hurriedly threw some kind of ending to the film together that you know Mm. sort of concludes it but it does turn into a totally different movie which looks cheap and bad and has terrible dialogue and the line readings are like awful mm. and uh so i was watching it like cringing what is that oh it's rain it's rain okay, sorry carry on so i was watching that and cringing yeah i was i was i was really cringing at the, the movie it was like I just felt bad. It's like, you know, when you go to see a movie and it's bad and you're just like, this is a piece of shit. You know, you come out and you just think, yeah. you know, the the people who did this movie are not talented and they fucked up and, you know, boo them. But you just feel bad for them. I, I, like, it made me, like, I felt pity. It's probably my overriding emotion leaving <laughs> the film was pity for the people involved in making it. It's the most pitiful film of the year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it's so odd. I don't know. I kind of, I feel bad for, like, the critical mauling because... It's an unsuccessful film for like these behind the scenes reasons, but like it was, le- it had like an ambition behind it. You know, they were like trying to do something. Yeah, and it's so much like compare that to like 
the Jurassic, Jurassic World, World or like Terminator, which is like the most cynical movies ever. And like this one had like a like something going for it. Yeah, yeah. And so its failures are down to external creative forces rather than they didn't just deliver a bad movie, you know. Yeah, but at, and, the, at the same time, it's also a movie that was rushed out the door because they needed to make one in order to keep the rights. Say maybe with Fox, they didn't revert. Maybe to it was a bit cynicism. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but no, no. I see your point. I mean, you watch the movie and you're like. Um, they they had concepts for what they were going to do with the characters, which yeah, sound like they could have been interesting. They had a definite they had a definite take on it. I really like the idea of um, doing these uh, superhero powers as a kind of. Yesterday I bumped into Imelda Staunton. She was up with her dog, and we got talking. I asked her what she does when she isn't acting. She said she likes podcasts for relaxing. Imelda, when you're in the mood. And finally, the Water Diviners on DVD, Sam. I'm sure you were familiar with this film. The directorial debut of friend of the show, Russell Crowe. He's not a friend of the show. He's not a friend of the show. I like to say that about people. Yeah, it came out, well, it's come out during Film Chat's life, but for whatever reason, we didn't get around to it that week. I don't know why. How could we have missed it? We missed the Water Diviner. And uh, it's now on DVD, and we won't be reviewing it (laughs) again. (laughs) Neither of us is going to see this film. It's out on DVD, and when he was uh, promoting the film, he did an interview with um, our main rivals. Yeah. Friend of the show, Simon Mayo. Um, where he discussed you know how what experience he had as a director and how he got his actors prepared for the role and he just detailed this um, quite maverick directing yeah. process here's a clip of Russ just taking us through his boot camp one of my assets you know was having a 10 day boot camp and then a two week period of rehearsal so at this boot camp you know you might start at dawn you might go for a walk you might do some yoga uh, you might do an intense weight session. You might go on a 50K bike ride. You know, you'll go and do your horse riding lessons. You'll do your weaponry training. Wow. You'll, and at nighttime, you'll do lectures about the geopolitics of the time, the history of the Ottoman Empire. And the next day, you get up and do it all over again. You know, and sometimes I'll take you on a really heavy sort of 12-hour day. And at the end of the 12-hour day, here's your bow and arrow. You've got to shoot three uh, bullseyes before you can eat. You know, because I need to know that the people who are working with me understand that they still have to come up with ideas in the 12th hour. You know, if they run out of juice in the sixth hour, they're of no use on my film set. You sort of get the impression like Simon Mayo was questioning him about being director because it's the first time he's ever done it. And he really wanted to show, you know, that he had a he was an auteur, you know, he's not just some big muscular man who's made a lot of angry films uh, but he's also a genius yeah. and he knows how to direct really well yeah so you see he was going to some lengths to prove it yeah but that actually that clip of the interview is actually part of a much larger interview that wasn't broadcast where he really went into a lot of detail about the boot camp absolutely yeah and, and you got uh, in touch with mayor didn't you? you asked him to send the original tape yeah we're rivals but we have a respect for each other which it's a friendly rivalry. It's a friendly rivalry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, here's some of the um, stuff they had to cut out because he's went on far too long about his boot camp. You might notice his voice different or shifting or his accent uneven, but that's because he's an actor and he inhabits many roles. Uh, you must... So you've you've picked up on, uh, on tips everywhere, but... How would people know they've been in a Russell Crowe movie? Some days it's a case of stripping the fellas naked, putting them in a field with a bunch of sheep, a pair of shears and a 17th century loom, and saying, get on with it come back a few hours later if they're still in the nutty you're going home mate 
you know, if you can't shear a sheep, turn that into wool and then weave that into some sort of clothing, you're no use to me on the set, you know. How are you going to remember your lines? And, uh, ask if they could take a crayon in the squatter. And I'd have to tell them, no, mate, you know, you've got to, before you can do that, you've got to buy a controlling share in a struggling sports teammate and revive their fortunes. And if you can't do that, how can you be expected to do any role? So, you know, could it be anything from a 90 mile hike to uh, solving Fermit's Less Fearim? Yeah, at the end of the day, I go, here's a knife, kill your firstborn. Because if you can't, you're no use to me. If you can't show absolute law to me right now, I mean, how the hell are you going to hit your mark? The day of the shoot, uh, Jai Courtney came up to me and he said, Russ, uh, is there any way I can have something to eat other than the uh, rare grass that you uh, grow in your backyard that, that enhances reflexes and stimulates the brain? And I had to say to him, Jai, I said, I'm afraid on Russell Crowe's set of the water diviner, you're going to eat my special grass and that's all there is available. So I had to send him away with an empty plate and that's just oh, the way second week, a lot of the crew were asking if they could sit down, you know, because obviously I banned it on my sex. I need strong will if you're going to survive in these conditions and in my filming conditions. And I had to tell him I'm afraid that the rules are the same, you know. You're only going to sit down if it's in my special chair and there is only one of those and it's called the throne of the gladiator. Is working for you more exhausting than working for Michael Mann then? Because he, he... No. No. Yeah. And yep. A rare approach taken by Crow, but paid dividends. Absolutely, I assume. I, I assume we're not going to review. We it. haven't seen it. We won't review it. But we assume that it is wonderful. If you've seen it, write in and let us know. Yeah. yeah, have you seen it? Please write in and let us know, guys. It's been wonderful being back. I'm sorry for the one week hiatus. Hope you enjoyed that total nonsense we sent you in the interim. And um, next week we'll be back in you know only seven days. Yeah, no longer wait this time. Woo. I hope you have a great week. See, See you then. Bye. Bye. Hi, JJ. I'm sorry to call so late. Um, you're probably... Oh, actually, you're in LA. You're probably awake. It's probably a reasonable time. So I take that first bit back. But I'm just calling because I've had a fantastic idea. I was watching some of your films, The Star One, and I thought, what if this is crossed with the film that you're making next? I think it's going to be great. Opening scene. Enterprise crashes into one of Tatooine's twin sons. It will be incredible. I haven't thought that much further ahead, but I'll get back to you. Captain's Log, JJ. This is the opening dialogue of your film. <clears throat> Captain's Log. I'm in a strange new galaxy. It is far, far away from the last one. That's a sort of Star Trek, Star Wars reference, JJ. Turns out there's another final frontier. I haven't thought this through. I'll get back to you. Kirk and Han have a fight. I don't know why, but it would be good if that, if that happened. Yoda's in the swamp, right, in this film. And um, Spock visits him, but he mistakes him for a sort of evil gremlin. And he tries to give him the death grip, but then Yoda talks him out of it. It's my latest idea. Nemo is back. Your best character in any of your films, right? Even better than um, Simon Peck. And uh, he's back from with the explosion or however he died in Star Trek and he comes back and um but he runs the Death Star now that will be brilliant it's like another ship it's a big black ship again but he's running it now and Vader's out he's just been sidelined and he's been replaced by Nemo from Star Trek JJ I want to apologise for my previous message my references to Captain Nemo are obviously wrong I'm thinking of um Nero you know I'm confusing Vern and um Nero, you know, the Roman Emperor, the one you named after the uh, character in your film. Eric Banner played him. Wonderful character. Triple. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Turn out to be Ewok babies. <laughs> 